0: Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratz. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratz, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, April seventeenth, Tax Day, 2012. I'll start today's podcast with a congressional update, including bonus depreciation legislation introduced in the Senate, and a heads up on some hearings on tax reform planned for this and next week. Then, I'll review findings of a report as to how states evaluate their state-level tax incentives. In our Renewable Energy segment, I'll discuss favorable new guidance from the IRS related to power purchase agreements. I also have an update about the Section 1603 cash grant program, a review of interesting position statements about energy provisions that are included in a committee report that accompanied the House GOP budget proposal. And I also have highlights of a recent report about global investment in renewable energy in 2011. In the Loan Composing test Credit section of this week's podcast, I have some good news about a Dear Colleague letter that was circulated last week by Senators Cantwell and Snow. The letter seeks support for S-1989, a bill that would make permanent the 9% low-income housing tax credit floor that was enacted temporarily four years ago back in 2008. From there, I'll turn to two topics in California. First, there are some upcoming forums that the California Tax Credit Allocation Committee will hold about changes to the state's geographic apportionment. And second, I have a follow-up discussion from last week about post-RDA or Redevelopment Agency guidance issued by California's Department of Finance. And finally, in our New Market Tax Credit discussion, I'll share more good news, this time from Ohio, where two state senators have introduced legislation to expand the state-level New Market Tax Credit program. So, if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, I'll start with a congressional update. Congress returned to Washington, D.C. this week after a two-week district and state work period. In the Senate yesterday, the so-called Buffett Rule was brought up in a show vote, and it did not pass the Senate. Later this week, a similar show vote is expected in the House, dealing with the 20% income exclusion bill for small businesses and calculating the federal income taxes. While that bill is expected to pass the House, albeit it might be a closer vote than originally anticipated, that bill is also not expected to pass the Senate. Both votes are considered show votes in advance of the election in November. Getting back to other matters in the House and the Senate this week and next, today, April 17th, the House Ways and Means Committee is holding another in a series of hearings on tax reform. This hearing is about possible changes to tax-favored retirement savings plans, basically the impact tax reform could have on the incentives to save. Then, later this week, on April 19th, also dealing with tax policies, but tax policies in renewable energy, the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee's subcommittee on Investigations and Oversight is going to hold a hearing titled Impact of Tax Policies on the Commercial Application of Renewable Energy Technology. We'll have more on both these hearings in next week's podcast. Then, turning to next week, on April 25th, the Senate Finance Committee is holding a hearing titled Tax Reform, What It Means for State and Local Tax and Fiscal Policy. Here, once again on the Senate side, one in a series of hearings on tax reform, here looking at the impact on state and local tax and fiscal policy, the impact of tax reform in that area. Also next week, and probably of most note to our listeners, on April 26th, there's going to be an extender's hearing by the House Ways and Means Committee. Now, this hearing is going to review various tax extenders, particularly those that have expired at the end of last year. And while formal notice of the hearing is expected to be made later this week, we do expect the hearing to be held on April 26th, and we right now expect those to speak on behalf of various extenders will be members of Congress only. That could change, but that's how it looks right now. I also note that this week and next week and in the coming weeks ahead, The House Republicans are expected of a series of listening sessions on tax reform, wherein members of the House Republican caucus who are not on the Ways and Means Committee will have an opportunity to speak up regarding their views on tax reform. And then I do have one other congressional development. Late last month, Senator Debbie Stabenow introduced a bipartisan bill that would extend the 100% bonus depreciation provision a provision that expired at the end of 2011. Senate Bill 2240 is a companion measure to legislation introduced in the House by Representative Pat Tiberi earlier last month. Congressman Berry's bill, H.R. 4196, has gained considerable bipartisan support and currently has 34 co-sponsors. And lastly, in the General News section, an interesting report about state-level analysis of tax credits was recently released by Pew. Specifically, research by the Pew Center on the states has concluded that 13 states are doing a good job of evaluating state-level tax incentives. As listeners know, states do use a wide range of tax incentives to encourage businesses to locate, hire, expand, and invest within their state. The Pew Center reports that every state has at least one tax incentive program, and most have at least several. Pew reviewed nearly 600 documents and interviewed more than 175 government officials and experts to examine how, and how well, states gauge the effectiveness of their tax incentives, if they do so at all. Researchers found that often states that have conducted rigorous evaluations of some incentives virtually ignore others or assess others infrequently. Other states regularly examine these investments, but not thoroughly enough. Now, the report cites some states as leaders because of the scope of their assessments. These states have reviewed all major tax incentives and have taken steps to integrate the results into policy and budget deliberations. Oregon, for example, is noted for giving its incentives expiration dates or sunsets, which force lawmakers to examine them periodically. Pew reports that Arizona, Iowa, and Washington also are trying to ensure their evaluations become part of the policymaking process. The report recognizes other states for the quality of their analysis. For example, in Connecticut, a study of the Job Creation Tax Credit provided evidence that the investment had benefited the state. And in Wisconsin, Pew says policymakers scaled back the state's film tax credit after an evaluation found it to be ineffective. In addition to the 13 states that the report says are doing well, 12 states have mixed results. Pew says the other 25 states, along with Washington, D.C., are trailing behind. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit News, the IRS has issued a favorable private letter ruling regarding power purchase agreements, or PPAs. The IRS ruled, in private letter ruling 2012 14007, that a portion of the purchase price of a group of assets, assets that were subject to a PPA, that a portion of the purchase price did not need to be allocated to the power purchase agreement. Now, a power purchase agreement is an intangible asset that is not eligible for the investment tax credit or a Section 1603 cash grant. Now, The IRS ruled that no portion of the purchase price needed to be allocated to the power purchase agreement, even though, for book purposes, a determination had been made that a portion of the purchase price did need to be allocated to the power purchase agreement. Now, it's important to note that the ruling was a private letter ruling, such that it was directed to the taxpayer who requested it and may not be used or cited as precedent. However, the guidance did provide welcome guidance by the renewable energy community. Now, the positions taken by the IRS in the ruling have significance to solar and wind transactions in situations where electricity is sold under the power purchase agreement, obviously. And these transactions can include outright project purchases, project purchases via the sale-leaseback structure, midstream purchases, as well as other PPA arrangements. Now, if you'd like more information about this ruling and what it could mean to your project, I encourage you to contact my partner, Stephen Tracy, here in our San Francisco office, or my partner, Tony Grapponi, in our Boston office. You also can find a copy of PLR 2012 14007 online at www.energytaxcredits.com. Now turning to Section 1603 news, last week the Treasury Department posted a sample combined application for the Section 1603 Cash Grant Exchange Program. The application can be used to apply for a Section 1603 grant for energy property on which construction began in 2009, 2010, or 2011. Submitting a combined application is an alternative to submitting a begun construction application, and later updating it to a place and service application. A copy of the combined application has been posted online at www.energytaxcredits.com. And if you have questions about applying for the Section 1603 cash grant, Novogratic and Company's Renewable Energy team has the answers. Simply give us a call at 415-356-8000. And you can also learn more about the latest developments in renewable energy by attending the Financing Renewable Energy Conference on May 3rd and 4th. It's going to be held here in San Francisco. More information about that conference is available at www.novaco.com slash events. I would like to note that Senator Maria Cantwell, as well as investor and former controller Steve Wesley, are two keynotes for our conference. Lastly, I'd like to turn to the House GOP budget report, or a small portion of it. Regular listeners may recall from previous podcasts that last month, the House approved the budget resolution that was proposed by Budget Committee Chairman Paul Ryan and House Republicans. This week, I have a quick follow-up on a report that accompanied the actual bill. Now, that report includes an interesting discussion related to renewable energy, Now, while the budget committees determine the exact policies that will be used to align the overall spending levels in the budget resolution, the report does offer a series of options as illustrations of the kinds of proposals that individual committees could use to meet the budget's fiscal guidelines. In the section about discretionary spending, the report suggests two options. One, reduce administrative costs at the Department of Energy, and two, scale-back corporate subsidies in the energy industry. Regarding this second option, the report notes that the House GOP budget resolution recommends, yes, recommends, paring back spending in areas of duplication and non-core functions, such as, and I quote, development projects best left to the private sector. Specifically, the report says that renewable projects have received substantial subsidies and asserts that on a dollar per unit of production basis, the level of subsidies received by the wind and solar energies in industries were almost 100 times greater than the level of subsidies for conventional energy. The report says, and I quote, The budget aims to roll back such federal intervention and corporate welfare spending across energy sectors. In addition, in the mandatory spending category, the report suggests rescinding unobligated balances in the Department of Energy's green subsidies and loan portfolio. To support this suggestion, the report resurrects the specter of infamous renewable energy loan guarantee recipient Solyndra. Now if these statements and positions are an indication, this year's budget process promises to be a bumpy ride particularly for energy subsidies. So stay tuned. Now turning to another Pew report, in research released last week this time by the Pew Charitable Trust. There was, it was noted that global clean energy finance and investment grew to $263 billion in 2011. This $263 billion is a 6.5% increase over the previous year. Now, the report is called, Who's Winning the Clean Energy Race? And it examines how nations are faring in the competition for private investment among the world's leading economies. The report says that among G20 nations, the United States reclaimed the top spot from China, which led the global clean energy race since 2009. Germany, Italy, the United Kingdom, and India were also among the nations that most successfully attracted private investments last year. The research indicates that in the United States, which attracted $48 billion last year, investors took advantage of the country's stimulus programs that expired before the end of 2011. This boost was also credited in part to the Production Tax Credit, which is also slated to expire in December of this year. In low-income housing tax credit news, last week, Senators Cantwell and Snow circulated a Dear Colleague letter in support of Senate Bill 1989. Senate Bill 1989 is the bill that would prevent a significant reduction in the amount of investor equity that could be used to build affordable housing. It would do this by making permanent the temporary provision enacted in 2008 that establishes a minimum 9% tax credit rate floor for the long housing tax credit program. The letter warns that in the next few weeks, affordable housing developers will have to begin assuming a reduction in the amount of investor equity that they'll be able to access to build affordable housing. This reduction is about 18%. The letter goes on to note that when combined with budget cuts at the local, state, and federal level, This reduction in the minimum tax credit percentage further cuts resources that are available for affordable housing, making it even more difficult to build and preserve affordable housing. In their letter, Senators Cantwell and Snow note there are more than 350 national, state, and local organizations in all 50 states that strongly support Senate Bill 1989. You can find a copy of this dear colleague letter, on the Legislation page at www.TaxTradeHousing.com. I also would like to note that supporters of the Long Consoling Tax Credit are encouraged to take this opportunity to follow up with their Senators and Staffs by sending an email with the letter, this Dear Colleague letter attached, and ask them to sponsor Senate Bill 1989. Now, I would like to turn to the State of California. Last week, the California Tax Allocation Committee announced that it will hold forums throughout the state to discuss updating the geographic regional apportionments effective in 2013. On August 30, 2011 of last year, the committee staff published a memorandum and supporting documents proposing to update the underlying data and corresponding percentages of the competitive 9% geographic apportionments. The committee is currently in the process of gathering and compiling data to update the current system, as well as considering alternate factors and methodologies. To gather additional input from the low tax credit stakeholders, the committee is going to hold forums to meet with those that are interested in discussing an update to the geographic apportionment. These meetings are expected to present a forum in which TCAC staff will provide an overview of the existing system and potentially discussing alternative systems. The sessions will be interactive with stakeholders encouraged to present their comments on the current system as well as proposed alternatives. Now, because of the size of its population, as much as 12% of all state long income tax credit capped projects are allocated in California, or at least 12% of all the tax credits, if not the projects. This means that the results of these forums could be significant for those working within the state, obviously, as well as those developing affordable tax credit housing elsewhere. Staying in California, but turning to the Department of Finance, As I mentioned last week, California's affordable housing community is very concerned about a Frequently Asked Questions document that the state's Department of Finance issued on March 29th. In that document, the Department of Finance established a very narrow view of what it means to be an enforceable obligation for redevelopment agencies, or RDAs, and their successor agencies. The Department said it will not consider any money committed after uh, ABX1's 26's passage date of June 28th to be an enforceable obligation. I'll say that again, the Department said it will not consider any money that was committed after ABX-126's passage to be an enforceable obligation. In response to that document, the California Housing Consortium has sent a white paper to Governor Jerry Brown detailing its concerns about how the Department of Finance's stance will adversely affect the low- and moderate-income housing fund. In an accompanying letter, the California Housing Consortium said that the Department of Finance's representations are inaccurate and raised legal questions about valid loan agreements and related contracts. You can read the white paper in the accompanying letter online at the Affordable Housing Resource Center. And if you have questions about the Department of Finance's document and what it could mean for your property, I encourage you to contact my colleague, Jim Kroger. Jim can be reached at 415-356-8000 or send him an email, jim.kroger, K-R-O-G-E-R, at novoco.com. Jim's been monitoring the RDA situation closely, and he can help you with any questions you may have. In New Market Tax Credit news, last week, state senators Bill Beagle and Charlita Tavarez introduced legislation that would expand Ohio's New Market Tax Credit program. The Dayton Business Journal reports that the bill calls for increasing the cap on the new market tax credit to $50 million from the current $10 million. Senators Beagle and Tavares say boosting the cap will spur an additional $500 million in investment activity. Ohio's New Market Tax Credit Program was launched back in 2009. The Journal goes on to report that in 2011, the Dayton region received $2.1 million in tax credits through the New Market Fund. That was on $5.1 million in projects in Montgomery County. At the time of this recording, the bill was awaiting its first hearing in the Senate. And if you'd like to learn more about the state and new market tax credit programs, particularly in Ohio, I invite you to contact my partner, Annette Stevenson, at Novigradic & Company's Cleveland, Ohio office. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradic & Company LLP. Archived discussions are available online at slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogradic Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogradic & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm. With 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.